2: Hey, everybody. Welcome into an only episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon.
0: And I'm Nick Saveri.
2: On the program today, the ongoing debt ceiling battle between Congress and the Biden administration. Diane Feinstein's health issues, Representative George Santos's legal issues. All of that as PBS NewsHour correspondent Lisa Desjardins stops by the podcast in just a bit to chat with us. Plus, in our final segment, Nick, throwing it all away for something you are not. One star athlete in one of the most popular sports in the world, in my opinion, is doing just that. Nick and I, with more on Memphis Grizzlies superstar John Moran in our final segment. If you hadn't heard this story, it sounds a little bit repetitive because it happened twice. So, more on that in our final segment. Uh, Nick, how you been, buddy? What, what's going on over there in uh, Easton, man? I haven't talked to you in a few days. We've been, uh, we had the town hall uh, episode, uh, we got a lot of feedback about that. Shout out to everybody that's been hitting us up on, on IG, TikTok, the TikTok comments are always
0: wild. I send you screenshots of that or YouTube comments are wild, but how you been, buddy? Well, good. Yeah, we are winding down. My my oldest is about two weeks left of school, or actually about like three weeks left of school. It's like 19, 20 days. So just winding down for that. Afterwards, we have a trip coming up. Um, nice. While you and I, I mean, obviously we do our show on the other side, you know, We've hinted often about the other stuff we got kick we got cooking up at Leon Media Network, uh, involving the work of myself and some really good friends and colleagues. So we're excited, man. You know, I know I've got yet another meeting with this. You know, the folks at Leon Media Network on Friday. They're relentless. You know, obviously that's right. Friday meetings. uh, That's what we do. We enforce Friday meetings here. That's exactly right. right. And but it's good that we are we're on track. Stuff's already been put in the proverbial can, as we like to say, and. We're just inching close to getting getting started, folks. We we're just pumped, like any other program. And I'm just teasing out one. Mike could easily tease out another, but he's not going to. But um, we're just cooking up some some really good stuff at the network, and I'm excited about that. How are you doing? I'm good, man.
2: And by the way, uh, visit us at LeonMediaNetwork.com. You can check out some of the shows that Nick is alluding to. One that he will be co-hosting. Uh, we got another one launching soon. We've got a politics podcast coming soon with somebody that you've seen on television on your television screens across Fox News, MSNBC. So stay tuned for that sign up on leonmedia to find out more. I want to shout out the muckrake political podcast. I was just on there uh, Jared Yates Sexton, Nick Hausman. Both of those guys, they've had me on uh, twice now, one time to co-host when Jared was away, another time now as a guest and Apparently, Nick, and shout out to the muckrakers who are listening to this podcast right now, I was voted, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I'm going to assume it is, uh, just to inflate my ego. But I was voted uh, the most favorite co-host fill-in when Jared went away on vacation. So I'll take that trophy. I'll put that up here on the uh, on the mantle for the people watching on YouTube. Um, I'm doing good, though, man. Everything's, everything's been really good. Stay tuned for some show launches, like Nick mentioned. We've got some really cool stuff coming up. And you know what, Nick? We're going to do something different here, right here at the top. Normally, we get into our first segment. You weren't able to join us for the interview I did with Lisa Desjardins. Um, She's a fantastic correspondent over at PBS NewsHour. Check out all their work over at PBS.org. Check your local listings when NewsHour comes on. It's normally at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, But we're going to play the interview right now because her and I get into a lot about the debt ceiling. There's recent news about George Santos. There was just a, a vote on the House floor as we're recording this to expel him that kind of went along party lines and no House Republicans kind of voted for that. So and Lisa alludes to that in the interview. So we're going to play the interview. We're going to come back on the other side, react, and then we'll get into our final segment about John Morant. So here's Lisa. All right. Joining me now, she's a fantastic correspondent over at PBS's NewsHour, and that's Lisa Desjardins. Lisa, Mike, Leon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with me.
1: Uh, Really glad to be here.
2: Well, first off, Lisa, I'm so glad I pronounced your last name properly. We were talking about this (laughs) off air about the hockey reference. So shout out to people are going to kill me. I I mispronounce names all the time wrong on this show, but I got one right so far. Um, Eric
1: Desjardins. That's right.
2: That's right. That's right. Uh, Lisa, you know, the reason we had you on, we've been talking a little bit about the debt ceiling battle. We recently had Deepa Shire from NPR on talking about this. And this was a few weeks back. And there's been some recent developments, obviously, that has just come out. President Biden was supposed to go to a trip to Australia and New Zealand. He has since canceled that trip. What's the latest that you can share for our audience in terms of the negotiations, the ongoing battle, and, and what truly is at stake if we don't reach a deal by June 1st?
1: That's a lot to cover, but but those are the right questions exactly. Where we are right now is actually a better moment than I expected to be at today. You know, when I, we've covered a lot of these fiscal standoffs and my rule of thumb is they usually break down twice you know once at the beginning and then once near the end and I thought we were going to have that sort of you know big breakdown in talks yesterday but we didn't what we got instead was the White House giving Kevin McCarthy something that he wanted which was just one-on-one talks uh to take out the other leaders of the Capitol Mitch McConnell the Republican Senate leader Hakeem Jeffries the Democratic House leader uh take them out of the mix Chuck Schumer the Democratic Senate leader and just focus on really, the two main power centers in Washington right now, Republicans running the House and Democrats running the White House. So now we're going to have their two staffs conducting more focused talks. And really, what I think is happening here, Mike, is these are the real negotiations starting now. This, This is the actual getting down to it. Can they make a deal? Now, all that said, they are very far apart in terms of what each side wants or what each side feels they can give. We can go through all of that, but it's going to be difficult, I think, reaching a final deal. I think a lot of us can kind of sketch out what one could look like, but it's going to be very tricky building these coalitions because everything that's a compromise will take away votes from each side. You know, each side loses something when they give in the compromise. So that balance and all of the close margins we have here at the Capitol is going to be tricky to get to. What's at stake uh, is rather monumental. This is an unprecedented situation. Should we um, actually default on the US debt? Act if we should actually crash into the debt ceiling, as I call it, that's never happened. So, you know, you can read all the analysis you want. The truth is no one really knows exactly what would happen or how fast it would happen. One thing we know for sure is that the gov- the US federal government would not have enough money to pay all of its bills. So in some way somebody would have to decide what bills get paid which ones do not do we pay our creditors first do we pay do we pay our bills on the loans first some people think that's what treasury would do do we pay uh people in programs like social security who paid into that do we do that first do we keep government employees paid so what we could see very quickly is uh the shuttering of some government agencies the furloughing of government workers uh, changes in benefits, anyone you know receiving Social Security, Medicare, doctors, maybe their payments would be affected, Medicaid, that could be affected. We really don't know. And that's just on the domestic side. So that could have a huge economic effect and individual effect here. But the U.S., as ever, as I know, everybody watching this knows, uh, we have the world's um, core currency. And our debt is seen as perhaps the most reliable in the entire world, should it no longer be reliable, then that changes the equations and would have sort of not just a ripple, but potentially a tsunami effect across markets around the world. Now, it would depend. Would we reach default when we're very close to a deal? Does it seem like a deal is about to happen or would it be a default with just this epic standoff? I think where we're at matters a lot, but no matter what, if we do default, it, it would have very serious consequences for Americans and for the world.
2: You know, Lisa, I'm so glad you kind of alluded to something that I was going to ask you as a follow up, because the differences I've heard on other political podcasts and, and across the news spectrum has been about 2011 and that battle between Barack Obama and Speaker of the house at the time, John Boehner. So I would love for you to take us a little bit inside of like what are the key differences between that battle and when it got negotiated and how our credit rating was affected versus what's happening now because it seems like at least back then, it was operating in, in good faith, let's say, whereas right. right now we have a speaker of the House that's kind of being held hostage a little bit by the Freedom Caucus part of, of of his party. So can you take our audience into like the subtle differences between both of those battles? You've been covering this for so long. Nobody right. better, more expertise than you to, to kind of weigh in on it.
1: Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, I think that House Republicans and Kevin McCarthy would differ over the held hostage uh, language. You know, I I could see someone using that language, but I think they would say instead. Uh, so what's happened is the Freedom Caucus, they've lever- they have leveraged their their votes, and a, a smaller group of them, really, just the twenty or so holdouts from the McC- Speaker McCarthy votes, they've leveraged their power in this close margin House uh, to change the way House Republicans do things. And I I I think it is actually fair to say that mo- the almost the entire House Republican Conference likes the way things are going right now in terms of the way the conference is being run. There's more people have more input. Um, now, Now all that said, I, I think also what you're talking about is that Speaker McCarthy allowed a rule um, to pass whereby any single member of his conference can raise a vote to kick him out. So if somebody is not happy, if he forges a deal, say with Democrats that poor conservatives don't like, they could hold a vote to kick him out. And and that certainly is a sword over his head. Uh, but for now, it, I do think, honestly, McCarthy is not doing something at the behest of someone else so much as they are all kind of leading together in sort of a new system. It's a little bit chaotic, but they are, it, it's sort of working harder. There's more dialogue. There's more um, digging into the dirt of policy on the Republican side than I've seen before. So so all that said, anyway, so we're talking about 2011. Uh, I think the biggest difference, Mike, between now and 2011 is that the 2011 debt negotiations began in earnest, uh, I think, January or February of that year. And we ended up with a solution. I think we were hitting the debt ceiling in the begin- very beginning of August. So we we're talking about seven or eight months that they had to work on this and to really build the deal. In this situation, we've had, a silent cold standoff with really not any significant talks until perhaps just the last day. Uh, we've had you know some kind of cord- two cordial meetings. Uh, but even that, uh, they really started this process much, much later than we saw in 2011. So it's a test of this new idea of how to do things. Really, that groundwork for that was laid by the White House. The Biden White House took a lesson from 2011 uh, in that they believe uh, the Obama-Biden White House at that time uh, perhaps engaged too much and too early and gave the Republicans too much of a runway uh, to say, yeah, the debt ceiling should be negotiable. The debt ceiling should be something that we use to talk about other fiscal issues. Um, and I think that it was, it was very stressful and difficult. They did come out with a deal that um, capped some spending levels, did some other things, uh, in the end but i think the lesson that vice president biden and his team took away from that was that the white house engaged too much and so this time around what we saw from the from the biden white house is that no we're not we're we're going to keep keep you not just arms distance but we're not even going to talk about raising the debt ceiling as related to anything else we're going to keep that off the table as long as we can we all knew that in the end it was going to be a question of could House Republicans actually pass anything uh, to say what it was that they wanted? Could they pass a bundle of things that showed they, they have enough support for some kind of combination bill? And they did. When Speaker McCarthy got those 217 votes for that, uh, for the, for their bill, which would cut spending, also raise work requirements. Permitting reform has a bunch of things in it. It's basically their opening offer. When he was able to pass that through his conference to the surprise and shock of many Democrats, it changed how this negotiation was going to go. It forced the hand of Democrats because they have not been able to pass anything. There are not enough votes in the Senate right now for a clean debt ceiling increase, which is what Democrats want. That is due to Republicans in the Senate. But regardless, Democrats still can't pass something. So that really evened out, I think the negotiating postures. And while I think the Biden White House was thinking they could make it, you know, maybe all the way to the debt ceiling uh, deadline without having to really deal with with McCarthy, that changed in the last couple of weeks when the House Republicans were able to pass their bill. Um, And now that we're getting close to the deadline, everyone realizes that this is a serious situation, uh, that if they're not careful, they could accidentally stumble into default. So I, I think that timeline is just so different What's interesting is right now that timeline pressure seems to be helping. Sometimes it hurts. But at this moment, it seems like there are serious people in the room that are really trying to figure out what they can do.
2: Well, you fed into the follow up perfectly, because speaking of (laughs) margins, it's it's almost as if you have my script here that I'm asking you questions. Uh, Lisa, you know, Diane Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, we've been talking about her a little bit on the program. Obviously, I know she recently appeared in the halls of Congress. She claims she's been able to fulfill her duties, although obviously she's been absent for the past few months and on a few different key votes. What, what are you hearing uh, from Democrats? What's your read on whether or not Democrats are going to get behind calling for her to step down? And ultimately, what does happen with her? I know obviously her seat is up in 24, but what, what do you think will happen between now and then?
1: Uh, let's see, you know, I, I have not seen Senator Feinstein since she's returned to the Senate just a couple of days ago. So I haven't had the chance to, for myself uh, to, you know, take stock of, of it, how, if she's different than before she left or, or what she's like. We know she's in a, a wheelchair. We know that her health is fragile. So her, her staff uh, themselves sent out a statement from her saying that she continues to have balance issues, um, among other issues. As a result of her um, shingles infection and complications, you know it, it's clear from photos of her and video of her, other colleagues who have uh, run into her at the Capitol, uh, that that she really um, it seemed like survived a potentially life threatening blow. Here, I, I I don't know that medically, but it is clear that what happened to her was very serious medically, um, and it is a testament, I think, to her stamina. Other people would say to how stubborn she is that she has decided to stay in her office, stay in office. Democrats, to be honest, are divided about it. There are some who, before she returned, there were growing cries to say that she needed to step down because her vote on the Senate Judiciary Committee was decisive and would have been decisive in getting some nominees through. And those nominees were backing up. They were frozen because she wasn't here. So there were increasing calls for her to step down. She had to come back or else I think her job was in jeopardy. Um, Even now, though, she's not attending every vote. She really seems to be tending votes uh, either when she feels up to it or when she absolutely is necessary for Democrats to pass things. There are many Democrats who um, just don't really want to talk about it. They don't feel like it's a polite thing that it is. She was elected by her state and when she was elected by her state, Uh, There were already stories of questioning her age, questioning her capacity, but Californians still elected her. And there are some Democrats who say, you know, the voters of California, it was their decision. There is also the factor that there's a tremendous amount of respect for Dianne Feinstein. She was a pioneering, uh, not just female lawmaker, but like lawmaker of all types, especially on issues like guns, violence, um, those things she has been, and, and intelligence uh, also the U.S. posture toward war. These are things that she's had major influence on and she was kind of a a pillar here in the Senate. Now, I will say her decision to stay has undermined that legacy, I believe. You know, while she still has a lot of respect, people aren't talking about her legacy as much as they're talking about, you know, should she stay? She has decided to stay. We don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. Maybe being back will make her um, take stock of whether it's working for her to be back or not. But you know, I've covered many, many lawmakers. Usually, it is senators who reach the older ages of health and just are and I'm not I'm Diane Feinstein, again, I haven't had a chance to talk to her, so I can't comment on what she is like at this moment. Um, there was an interview yesterday that indicated she really didn't seem to understand the questions that were being asked her. But I will say I have had conversations with many, many other senators. Um, who were 80, 90 years old, um, who, for example, couldn't couldn't find their way to the bathroom. You know, it, this is not a unique situation for the US Senate. It is unique in that her vote is so critical and she's so closely watched for that reason. I also think, to be honest, that um, there was some sexism going on with her for a little while, that, that she was held before this illness. Uh, there are questions about her capacity, her fitness, uh, that were raised that I had not seen raised about male senators who I can tell you were certainly certainly had less ability to hold a conversation with me than she has. So I, I think that was operating. I do think this illness really uh, was a bit of a, a of a kind of gut punch to her health, and I think we're still seeing how she does. You know, my take right now, there's no change. I think that um, we're still watching to see if being here affects her decision. But she's she is a tough cookie, you know, as you can tell by the fact that she's returned up here. You know, it looks like she's having she has trouble seeing because of this illness. Um, But, you know, something has driven her to return. There are some Democrats that say it's time for her to go, but she's staying.
2: Well, we transition with uh, somebody has no respect and no legacy in uh, Representative George Santos out of New York City. What a fantastic segue, by the way, Mike. Nice. Uh, th- th- thank you. Uh, so, Lisa, um, now that George Santos has been formally charged and we've seen and I think you have asked some of these questions as well as Mount Raju over there at CNN, uh, yes. of Speaker McCarthy and what he is either standing behind George Santos. Uh, he keeps repeating the talking point line of he has not put him on any committees But what are you hearing now in terms of maybe the growing pressures from House Republicans? Are are they playing the weight game in in terms of the legal process or are they saying, you know, it's time to have George, you know, we've got a little bit of a cushion here. It's time for him to resign and and open that seat back up. What are you hearing from House Republicans? What's what's the wave swinging in terms of where you think this will ultimately net out as the legal process continues with him?
1: Well, you are a keen observer of uh, the people up here as well. So I want to hear what you think, especially from uh, Speaker McCarthy's news conference yesterday. I, I think the House Republicans want him to go. You know, they they want him out. Uh, they do need his vote, uh, potentially through this debt ceiling fight. They might need him. Uh, but I think that they're hoping for a window where he could leave and they could get another Republican in that seat. Speaker McCarthy yesterday talking to us, it was Manu's question right next to me. Uh, yesterday said uh, that he wants an ethics investigation. He doesn't want uh, Santos to be expelled this week. There is a movement. We could see a vote today on the House floor to try and expel him. The votes aren't there right now. It takes two thirds vote. Um, and McCarthy is essentially saying, hold off. Let's wait till an ethics investigation happens. He said he thinks that can happen quickly. I don't know. How did you read that? I read that, that McCarthy does want Santos out. He doesn't want him out now. He wants a little bit of padding in there.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, the numbers are in their direction right now. And I just think, I mean, look at the news cycle and look at the way you've been covering Congress over the past 17, 18 years. Um, There's no scandal bigger than somebody being indicted and now formally charged. And Al Franken resigned for less. I was on a political podcast talking about that uh, just the other day. So, I mean, if if you just look at where we are right now in terms of accountability and people being held accountable for their actions, who knows how this plays out? I mean, I could easily see uh, him staying until 24 and finally something happened with the legal process. Who, who knows? But I don't, I don't. it's weird. It's funny and that it's, I, it could,
1: I don't know. It seems like, I think the, the ethics committee is, is usually a toothless tiger here in Congress, to be honest, you know, they sometimes have value in terms of campaigns and opposition campaigns will say, Oh, the ethics committee found this and this and this about you, but they rarely take um, action that um, is significant against members of Congress, and you can judge what significant means. But uh, I think in this case, the message I'm getting is that you know McCarthy is telling them, you guys need to have some serious. Rec- you should you should look at whether he should be removed, and and that would be exceptional uh, because as you're right, that an indictment is sort of one of the biggest scandals you can have up here. Most um, indicted lawmakers, uh, there or I should put it this way, there have been. In the past ten years, I think we've had seven indicted members of Congress. Most of them had ended up resigning. One of them uh, lost a reelection bid. But those resignations usually came after they were convicted or after they made a plea deal. Uh, they don't usually come before that while the indictment is pending. McCarthy knows that, but I think he still wants to find a way to get Santos out because first, it's it's bad. For, Santos is not a great look for the Republican Party. He knows it. That's what you're saying too. Um, And I think he personally doesn't, they just he doesn't doesn't love him. Uh, And that's a district Republicans should want to not just win, but they want to make it a full time long term Republican district. And it's one that could go either way if the right candidate shows up for Democrats. So um, I I, I just am getting a feeling they want him out before um, a conviction or a guilty plea would happen.
2: Well, you know, just staying on that for one quick second before I shift topics, um, you know, I know Representative Richie Torres has introduced the Santos Act, right? And I don't know what the acronym off the top of my head stands for right now, but obviously it's about future George Santos's ones that have lied in terms of not only their work and career trajectory, but some of their financial earnings and stuff like that. Are you hearing anything momentum wise on that bill? Or is that something that's just along partisan lines and probably won't get passed in the House?
1: You know, I don't know how partisan that is. There is actually some bipartisan interest in reforming um, the ethics rules and the standards for how members of the House operate. And that comes from uh, Speaker McCarthy and Leader Jeffries. They've been talking about that, trying to set more clear standards or some kind of uh, more clear boundary lines. That's a bipartisan idea. I, I think that bill at this time does not have a future. Uh, but I think that that's one of those things that, and you probably observed it so many times from the assignment desk. That's a seed that's being planted right now. It might take a few years for it to turn into something. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think that that bill has a future this Congress. But you know, you never know.
2: You never know. All right. Well, Lisa, I want to get your takes on this because I want you to relax for me for a little bit here. Oh, take the uh-oh. take the TV okay. hat off. Forget oh, the cameras my. are here. There's no microphone. That usually
1: here. means you want me to say something like that I'll regret.
2: <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. So, <laughs> so our last episode was around uh, the CNN town hall with former President Trump. Uh, I saw one of your tweets that caught my eye where you were talking about you were having, I guess, this philosophical, maybe internal debate about whether or not you would live tweet about it. And we've done episodes here. I've done a few on media literacy. We've had Ron Filipkowski on the program who obviously covers a lot of right-wing extremism media. And and one of the questions I had asked to him was about platforming some of this stuff, right? Like, and why are you doing it and giving them ample and reamplifying what they're saying? And he said something to the effect of, I'm clipping out segments that are making them look bad. So people can see how they look bad. And it's very short. I'm going through 2-3 hours worth of tape to get into a 45 second minute clip for Twitter. And I that kind of stayed with me and keeping in that same theme, I'm thinking now about why CNN would have the former president of the United States on. Obviously, like I just said, he is the former president of the United States. He is obviously potentially the front runner right now for the GOP in 2024. So giving him a platform to speak in a town hall setting Maybe the format is wrong, but I want to get your takes on why you chose not to really cover it and talk about it. And what do you make of platforming something like that in prime time, given the format a town hall audience? We all know how that's crafted, right? Questions are pre plotted. Uh, Everything is kind of to the discretion of the Trump campaign. Lesser effect to the news network, because one side's going to pull out of that. What was your overall read on it and why you decided not to live tweet about it?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think this is your saying, but I I know CNN had complete control over the questions, right? I know that, that they did, and I believe they also um, had control over the audience, which is another part of debate. I think over how CNN handled this. Uh, so why didn't why did I not live tweet? You know, to me, I guess the my equivalent answer uh, to what I'm doing when I'm tweeting is, you know, what can I add to the conversation? You know, I mean, what what can I am I doing something that like is can add to thought or is a question or something that I think um, expands thought and brings some light, you know, every, every now and then, you know, I'll, I'll get, get passionate about something and kind of, it'll be more heat than light. But most of the time for me, I'm just trying to shed light. Uh, sometimes I'm trying to be clever. Or sometimes I'm trying to be thoughtful, but you know, I just want something that sheds light. And I also think something we do at news hour, I'm not trying to promote us, but one reason I love working for us is, um, we're not trying to raise everybody's blood pressure. You know, like we're not, we're not trying to just be like sensation. We're having guys, here's something we're saying, react. I'm reacting. You react to me reacting. Like there's too much of that. And, and there's plenty of people doing that. You know, I think there's a big, there's a bit of a pack mentality in journalism. It's a natural thing, but I'm always looking to figure out, okay, what isn't being said? What aren't we covering? Um, what's a kind of, um, way of saying something that, that could add to the conversation. And, you know, I just think with Trump, I was the, our Trump reporter in 2016, at that point it was important to really document and really look closely at everything he was saying. It still is important to do that, but it was new and Americans were still sort of figuring out who is this guy? What is he about? I think now, you know, we know this is someone who like George Santos, um, has no problem telling lies for his own benefit when he needs to. He seems to believe those lies once he says them. Um, and I'm not saying the former president always lies. I'm just saying we have do- we can document that he has lied. That's clear. Uh, we know who he is. We also know his view of America. We know we know a lot of things about why the base likes him. Um, you know, so, so for substantial re- for substantive reasons and also for personality reasons, and also for what they think he represents. And we can get into all those debates. They're all very important. Um, But I just wanted to see, is there gonna be something new here that is adding to the conversation? And very quickly when you're watching that uh, interview, town hall, you could tell it was the opposite. That it almost felt like sometimes you watch events and you're like, I'm losing brain cells right now. I'm losing, I'm losing our collective soul is getting smaller. We're not getting smarter. We're not getting bigger. We're getting smaller. And I think just the, you know, the, when it's back and forth like that, not just between Trump, between anybody and a journalist, occasionally that's useful, but usually it just makes everyone look bad. Usually there's not a way to get out of that. And I think that's a, I think that's a signature of our time right now in journalism. You know, I look back to the founders of NewsHour, like Jim Lehrer, um, Robin McNeil. You know, there's, you know, I thought about that Trump interview. I said, man, I wish one of those guys had done it because I uh, first of all, there's also there's sort of there's a gender thing with Trump, too, that you have to take into effect, I think, with Caitlin Collins that she was dealing with. But um, but there's also a Trump versus CNN thing as well. But I think, you know, so, so it's not just because they're, it's not because they're guys, but I think that they had this sort of way of interviewing that was very kind of had this sort of laid back. I'm not getting pulled in. I'm not taking the bait. You know, I think journalists take the bait a little bit too much right now. And I, and they think that they can fight in the same way that Trump is fighting, but it doesn't, you can't, it's not, you don't fight like that. And so I think like, I just, I think it was Robin McDill that did an interview with Fidel Castro at one point, And I'm sorry if it was Jim Lehrer, it might've been, it was one of those guys and just a classic kind of madman song. He's just sitting back in an armchair with Fidel. So, you know, Senor Castro, you know, it was a very serious interview, but it was like the opposite of combative, which actually brought out, I think more of the problems with Castro and really put him on his heels more because it was sort of like, I'm not, I'm not going to like elevate this. Um, tornado of of sort of emotion and sensation that you do I'm gonna go the other way I'm gonna just step back and say but well, wait a minute you know hold on um now I don't know if anything could work with Trump Trump is Trump he's going to answer everything he wants he's gonna attack anyone who asks him a negative question um but for all those reasons I kind of just wanted to step back and do the like okay wait a minute I'm gonna keep my cool here <laughs> you know like and I and I didn't I just didn't think there was anything that added to the conversation
2: listen adding to the discourse is the purpose of this show confrontational hey, journalism i'm so happy con- to
1: be here yeah conf-
2: confrontational journalism is something i do not strive for nor do i want to do i want to have serious people on the program we talk to people who know what they're talking about and it feeds in yeah. perfectly into lisa desjardins and the team over at news hour you can check out all of her work over at pbs.org or check your local listings in time for when NewsHour airs. Lisa, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program today. Continue success to you and please stay safe.
1: Thank you so much. You too.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. If you want to tell people the big news,
2: Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like
1: Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can
2: build the site you want without the dev time.
0: Start building for free at Webflow.com
2: all right quick break from the podcast to tell you about the good folks over at fresh roasted coffee the official sponsor of the can we please talk podcast you know nick i want to do this different this ad read you hear the music in the background but let's tell the people about what we truly like about fresh roasted coffee i'm gonna go first because i love their colombian supremo it's my favorite k cup Uh, everybody in my family has been ordering it it's you can smell it when you're putting in the k-cup machine it's just so delicious and refreshing to know that i don't have to go with some of these other brands that are out there that their coffee just doesn't translate into k-cups for me and you know i'm a big k-cup guy and i just i just love what fresh roasted coffee brings me in the morning i know i can make my cup of coffee make my omelet have my breakfast ready to go what do you love about fresh roasted
0: coffee mr mr coffee snob aficionado i love the fact that they've turned my they've turned my coffee setup into the best coffee shop in town you know about a mile down the road from me is a a coffee company known for a particular shade of green shall we say i haven't stepped foot in there since you've introduced me to fresh roasted coffee love it they have absolutely this company folks i gotta tell you fresh roasted coffee turned my home into the best coffee shop in town now mike talked about flavors i'm a vanilla person every time i order from fresh roasted coffee by the way can we get 20 we'll make sure you save 20 percent off your first order when i order vanilla the hazelnut coconut it's my it's my holy trinity of coffee respect (laughs) um and it never fails it comes in the box ready to go it's the perfect blend of flavor but also strength because when i wake up in the morning i want a strong cup of coffee. But I also want to get that flavor too. And in a French press, as soon as I push it down, four minutes of course, let it steep, just get it right. I'm good to go. And I'm blowing through the coffee. I mean, these f- folks at, at Fresh of Coffee know every few weeks I'm calling in. And if you want to, folks, you can be a subscriber too. Like I'm gonna become. Mike, they've <laughs> they've turned my home into the ultimate coffee experience. I can't I can't put it any better than that. I mean, you really can't sum it up better than that. And like Mr.
2: Severi mentioned, you go to freshroastedcoffee.com right now. Not only coffee, they have tea as well. They're Positively Tea, sister brand. But you put all of this stuff, you go onto their site, you take their quiz, you get the coffee, you get the tea, you get the mugs, anything you want. When you get to checkout, enter in the promo code, can we get 20? To get 20% off the delicious coffee, head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right. Our thank yous there to Lisa Desjardins. Like I mentioned, PBS NewsHour correspondent. Follow her across social media, Twitter, IG. She's fantastic. Um, If you have not seen, I sent it to Nick. If you have not seen the video of Lisa at the Capitol on January 6th, she was covering this for PBS NewsHour. She happened to be in the halls of Congress. She's hiding behind a desk, calling in. Security's kind of helping her. I believe she won an award for her coverage on that day because, again, where the breaches were happening, she happened to be by um, and I was watching this video and she's on with uh, obviously the NewsHour anchor at the time, uh, Judy, that, that recently re- not retired, but she's moving on to another project. But um, it was it's, it's really there's people that have got January six scars. Right. And uh, we've talked to a few and that stuff was real. You know, you don't want to live in that universe and, and you don't think it's real. It's not, it's not going to be the show for you. But um, shout out to all the coverage she's done there. What do you make of some of the stuff she talked about there? Because I know at the top, we know about the debt ceiling battle. We've covered it a few times. We've had deeper shiver from, from NPR on obviously Lisa. Now the developments, we're still going to follow that as we inch closer to June 1st. But the stuff that I found really interesting was the Diane Feinstein stuff. She's back in Congress. She doesn't appear to be herself. I mean, who would in their 90s, plus, Who, who amongst us is still working in their 90s, traveling to work, right? Um, and then there's the question about whether or not she retires. The, the Democrats are having to struggle with respect to the party being split, about whether or not they want her to retire or they want her to stay. And then the people that are running in 24 for her seat, And then the George Santos stuff, the the polar opposite, right? a guy in his 30s who's lied about everything, not only from his career, but his finances, and now is actually formally charged for some of this fraudulent activity. And a vote goes by the wayside along partisan lines. Uh, I asked her about the Richie Santos bill, the representative, excuse me, Richie Torres bill um, out of New York, uh, named the Santos bill. That's why I had it on my mind. And that's going to fall by the wayside, she mentioned. What were some of your takeaways from not only the interview, but the issues that are playing out right now on Capitol Hill?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the low hanging fruit as far as George Santos goes. You know, she brought up the point about, you know, House Speaker McCarthy wanting the House Ethics Committee to deal with this rather than letting this go to a vote, which is laughable because we've seen some of the people on the House Ethics Committee. And we know that in a re- Republican controlled House, what is going to happen? Right. Like this. There's no way in that committee led by Republicans that he's going to get expelled. So this is just basically hiding under under party lines. I mean, it it seems relatively slam dunk, but this is always what keeps coming up. And there's we've seen this in other places where people are just getting, you know, voted out of office. Right. We saw this in Tennessee and obviously people were reinstated. We saw this recently in. There's a state in the Northwest where people tried to expel expel someone because um they they consider themselves transgender or something to that effect. You know, and it keeps coming back to does the congressional body or does the elected body get to make this decision, or do the voters you know if I voted for George Santos, obviously I wouldn't have, but if I had, don't I have the right to decide whether he represents me or not, but so many states don't have measures in place to deal with a runoff or anything. And that's, again, I always have tons of criticism. I mean, obviously, um, you know, our system of government has its flaws and, and its advantages. But in this one, there's just really kind of just party lines being split over this. As far as Diane Feinstein goes, she brought up, a, Lisa brought up a really good point about sexism in the coverage of this Um in the sense that, well, she brought up the point that she's observed, you know, male senators that as she had put it. You'll struggle to get to the bathroom. Um and why are we not talking about them? And while I understand that point, I'm also going to push back on this whataboutism here. We have a acting member of the US Senate who, according to govtrack.us, which is a great resource for just tracking voting, um, just voting habits of elected officials, you know, from from October to December 2020, 2021, she missed 46% of the votes. That were cast. So she just missed those votes. Most recently, April through May of 2023, she missed 84% of votes. At the same time, we also have in John Fetterman a similar situation. You know, Fetterman from February to March of 2023 missed 85.7% of votes made. So you have elected members that are not doing their job. Now, I know that sounds cruel, but understand something. If Diane Feinstein doesn't vote, no one can vote in her place. I, I haven't seen that. I mean, if, if, if I'm wrong, please email the show at can't we please talk Podcast at gmail.com. This is not a proxy thing. That's a member of the Senate in a pretty contested body of government right now who is unable to do their job. And that's not a slander on her. That's not a slander on her. I get it. Health concerns are real. The same thing with Senator Fennerman. But when these folks are unable to do their job, no one can step in and do it. Mike, at your job, if somehow you take a sick day or you take a prolonged sick leave, I'm pretty sure someone could step in and manage your workload. There's a plan in place for that to happen. There's certainly one in plan, a plan in place at where I work. That's not the case with members of Congress. So when they're not doing their jobs, we all, Especially right now, when you have such a fracture such a, a fractured you know, you <laughs> know government at this point, they're missing out on their jobs, which ultimately can affect all of us. And that's where I have the problem. And I agree that there are members of Congress who we ha- should probably consider, consider retiring if they can't be able to perform their responsibility. And I want to be sensitive about this, obviously, because you know you know health issues are real, but it is alarming. I know in the state of Oregon. There are a few members, at least three, I believe, that cannot run for a third term or a second term because they've missed a certain number of days. Ten, actually, that in the state of Oregon, it is in the books that says if you miss 10 days of your service, you cannot run again. Now, Senator Feinstein obviously not running again, but between now and 2024, November is a long time. That's a lot of votes. And I would echo this for both Senator Featherman as well, who represents my state in the state of Pennsylvania. So. Right. I, I thought Lisa did a great job breaking that down, along with her comments about the role of reporters and what she said as it relates to the town hall. So, uh, just incredible interview by you, but also uh, just the perspective she brought, and also just m- reminding us all the mission of, of what NewsHour does. You know, she mentioned that there are so many outlets that, out there, hopefully not ours, <laughs> but that you are designed to sort of raise blood pressure and that's not what PBS's ambition is. It's certainly not ours. It can we please talk? Although I, I am sometimes prone to do that based on a the little. comments and a little bit, and that's fine. Uh, thank you for listening anyway. But exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's that. I thought you did a great job. Well, I appreciate
2: that. Uh, and shout out to, like I said, Lisa, and you can go check out all her work at pbs.org. All right. And in our final segment, I alluded to it earlier in the show, talking about a star athlete right now that is potentially Throwing it all away. And when everybody uses that term, throwing it all away, I mean, obviously it's subjective. What is that person throwing all away? Is it money? Is it their career? Everything is subjective, right? To to an nth degree. But one star athlete right now has been in the news since Saturday when a video surfaced on Instagram on an IG live when Memphis uh, Grizzlies basketball star John Moran was seen dancing in a vehicle with some of his friends. And when his friend pointed the camera to him, He happened to have a pistol on him as he was, you know, bopping to the song. Yes, I said bopping to the song. That's right. Um, And so obviously quickly, the friend put the camera kind of down so that you couldn't see Ja anymore. A lot of people slowed the video down. There was freeze frames. There were screenshots. It went viral. It was confirmed that he did happen to have a pistol on him. And this is the second time that Ja Morant has had this incident happen to him. Earlier in the season, he was suspended eight games. When he was seen in a Memphis strip club, or it may have been on the road at a strip club on the road, and he was brandishing a gun. And this was surveillance footage that came out from the nightclub itself. I think it happened in Memphis. And so Adam Silver, the commissioner of the National Basketball Association, met with Cha. They sat down, they gave him a suspension of eight games. The Grizzlies complied with the suspension, he was docked some pay. Now, for this activity, obviously they're not in the playoffs as the NBA playoffs are happening right now. And so he's been suspended from team activities. What does that mean? He can't go to the facility. He can't do certain things, practicing with the team and stuff like that. He probably wasn't doing any of that anyway. So there's no real consequence just yet. He's been docked a little bit of pay. He's been docked a little bit of time during the middle of the season when they happen to have a good record. Nothing substantive. Now, I want to get into, I gave you a little bit of the context of the story, but I want to get at the root cause here. And the root cause, or at least the root issue in my eyes, is the coverage of, Another video of him having a weapon in a state that's open carry like Tennessee is, and it's being judged a little bit differently than other people. And I want to play a take that is kind of making the rounds right now as you and I started recording this and it's trending all over social media. And it's from former NBA basketball player JJ Reddick. Don't know who JJ Reddick is, former Duke shooting guard, and obviously. He is now a part of ESPN's lineup. He's an on-air basketball analyst, but he also is on First Take, one of their opinionated shows that airs between 10 to 12 noon on ESPN. J.J. was on a panel with Stephen A. Smith and Christopher Mad Dog Russo. They start talking a little bit about the John Morant situation, and then he says this. Take a listen.
0: And the last point I want to make, because you bring this up, the the guns on social media, we talk about consequences. Look, in our country right now, gun culture is pervasive. It's pervasive. We've got mass shooting after mass shooting, and nobody's doing a damn thing about it. So I get why we're so sensitive to this right now. But there's no consequence for Greg Abbott telling his constituents that they should go buy more guns and then we have mass shooting after mass shooting in Texas there's no consequence for an elected Tennessee official to send out a Christmas card holding AR-15s with his young family and then there's a shooting in his very district there's no consequences to that so why are we why are we trying to lay down the hammer on a 23 year old who didn't break a law
2: So obviously very passionate there. Um, we're going to get into his take in a second, but first I want to kind of level set everything here. And let me get into my take first on this, because again, I like to live in this right wrong fact fiction. Let's, let's start with the facts of this. John Morant works for, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies. That's a private employer. It's a part of the national basketball association. There's a collective bargaining agreement that players go through as they're represented by the players union that they work in conjunction with the owners. And this is how contracts are structured, the pay structure with the salary cap, et cetera, et cetera. So luxury tax, all of that stuff, not salary cap. So every team goes through this similar format with respect to when there's an issue with a player and he's about to be suspended for an action that's maybe detrimental to the team or it's in violation of his contract, that will go through the usual means of whatever the process the NBA has set up that the union negotiates on his behalf. I'm sure they're going to go through this process Right now, this happened in the offseason. So there is no basketball for Ja to be played. So there's not going to be any consequences. Back to JJ Reddick's point about the overall societal stuff. There is no consequence for other people and lawmakers. We're going to get into that in a second. But on the John Morant part, there really isn't a consequence here so far because he's not playing right now. They can't suspend him for the playoffs because they're out of the playoffs and there's no other team activities taking place that he would partake in until, you know, the preseason starts up towards the end of September, going into October. Okay. So that's the first part of this. Contractually, There's probably language, just like there's language for hosts of Leon Media Network. Nick has read the contracts. Other hosts that are on this great network have read the contracts. There's language about what you do on social media, right? And there's conduct detrimental to what you would do on social media that would represent the company in a bad light. So, the reason why this is getting so much attention, and JJ knows this, I didn't play the beginning of the clip because he said, I'm not condoning the action. And I also know that obviously he works for this employer like we've said all the time, same thing with the vaccine requirements, right? You you don't have a constitutional right to play shooting guard for the Memphis Grizzlies. You don't have a constitutional right to work at Leon Media Network. You don't have any of that. It's not in there. Trust me, I checked. So basically, if your employer has an issue with something and you signed a contract and there's language in there that legal beagles have kind of solved and written down the paper that says, if you do something that is deemed, and again, it's all subjective because it's in the eyes of the employer, you do something that's detrimental to the team and violate that conduct policy, you can get suspended. The overall question is, what do we do about John Morant? What do we do about somebody that's an ascending superstar in this sport? Somebody that is so talented. We've seen it with singers and when they have issues, you know, going to rehab and stuff like that, we've seen it with actors and actresses. And now we're seeing it with one of the game's brightest stars. And everyone is really concerned because from all accounts and all reports, he's not like this. You know, you get the societal part. He's been getting killed by NBA veterans on social media from Kwame Brown. Even members of the Crips have been weighing in on John Morant because he's been flashing gang signs during these uh, videos that have been recorded, not only in the nightclub, during the season when he's taking shots and stuff like that, and now in this IG Live video. And members of the Crips have said, if you really want to be about that life, let us know. And that's where we get into this crossover issue because at what point do we show somebody that your action has consequence no matter how talented you are, no matter how talented you are. And I'm waiting to see what Adam Silver does here, because in my opinion, forget about the black white debate for a second, forget about everything JJ Reddick just said, even though I a hundred percent agree with it. You know how we feel about this show. The fact that we can't come to sensible gun legislation, not only across States, but at a federal level to take away weapons of mass destruction that are killing our kids Is ridiculous and there's no accountability for some of these politicians that continue to open up the laws on the books to get people more access to guns as opposed to restricting the ones so we can all feel a little bit safer at night so i totally agree with jj reddick on that point and i totally to a certain extent shouldn't say totally agree with we're throwing the book at a 23 year old but the reason we're throwing the book at a 23 year old is because he's under contract the reason we're throwing the book At a 23-year-old is because action has consequences and his employers are going to determine that. It's not because of any societal questions or anything like that, or where he grew up, because according to all reports, he grew up in a a decent neighborhood in South Carolina, he went to Crestwood High School. Uh, His parents have been together for forever. His dad is at a lot of these games. He is not, to quote my buddy Nick Saveri, about that life. And there's been a lot of former NBA players that have said that exact same phrase. They've echoed that same statement. He is not about that life. So if he's not about that life, why is he living that life on Instagram, on social media and doing these things? And unfortunately, J.J. Reddick, he's going to have to pay for these actions that he's doing right now. Brandishing a gun. I'm with you. I'm with you. When I see the postcards of Lauren Boebert with her family and, and Thomas Massey is that representative. He, that's not technically his district, but he is a, a representative from that state. Um, I'm with you. Like, why isn't there any consequence for people being callous and insensitive to, you know, brandishing guns on a photo card that they're sending around for Christmas when there's been a mass shooting not too far away from where you represent? It's disgraceful. It's terrible. And I'm totally with you. However, it's not equatable. John Morant is an employee of the Memphis Grizzlies. He's going to be as suspended as such. And he's throwing away a talent, a generational talent that I wanted my team in the New York Knicks to draft back in a few years ago when they had the number three pick they would have had the number two pick. They would have taken John Moran. And so that's why it's a little bit personal to me because I'm seeing somebody on the biggest stage with obviously the most gifted skill set that the game has seen in a long time, potentially throwing it all away. Nick, what are some of your takes on not only what JJ said there, but also the fact that this is the second time this has happened with John Moran and the apologies seem a little hollow.
0: Yeah. I mean, I understand where, where JJ is coming from it. It is, it does seem outrageous. Um, you know, that governors can advocate for more guns. And and we see the, not necessarily the direct consequence. I mean, I think that, that just gun violence is, is a problem, but there are consequences for these folks. It's called votes, right? In the state of Texas, Governor Abbott's platform is embraced by the majority of voters. You know, the voters will decide the stance that you take. If you wish to remain in office, that's how, that's how that works. So even an elected official in Tennessee that wants to brandish a gun or Lauren Boebert in Colorado, you'll keep doing that dance as long as the voters support you. So those, those are the consequences that exist. I understand his outrage, but I think it's misguided. You know, when he asks about the outrage for guns, where is that? Where are the consequences? Why don't you, I would ask JJ, go talk to the folks, the amazing folks at Moms Demand Action because they're, they're doing something about the outrage. Um, Go talk to the state of Illinois. That now has banned assault weapons. The Supreme Court has basically stepped out of that argument for now. So the state of Illinois has a ban on assault rifles. Good for them. There are people doing things, and that's what the consequences is all about. But at the end of the day, as Mike was alluding to, the Second Amendment is not about what private companies can do if you decide to brandish a weapon. At my company, if I was foolish enough to brandish a gun on Instagram, My company has the right to pull me aside and and ask me what the hell's going on. And if it's egregious enough, they could terminate me. Just like the Grizzlies can terminate Jaws' contract. Obviously, there's a whole union issue there, but that's how this works. And what throws me off and reminds me again, as an educator, of just how poorly we teach people civics in this country. It's like the First Amendment people that talk about, well, you know, You can't take away my right to do something. My company can't do that. Like, like, are you just, are you people just dumb? Do you not understand how this works? The constitution isn't, isn't governing private business. Your company gets to decide what it chooses to do with you. Don't like that work for another company. Ja isn't happy with what the NBA does or what the Memphis Grizzly does. Go play in China. I, Dwight Howard's certainly recruiting people right now in Taiwan. It just simply, it's about private business. And I think when we talk about this outrage, the Second Amendment enthusiasts, like, just get in line with the First Amendment people who also didn't read the damn document in the first place. You've talked about the Crips, and that's the one that, that, that seriously gives me pause. That's the one that, when I think about the, the real consequences, that's the one I stop on. Because there is the danger of playing tough among tough people. The folks that are, talk, that are about that life, as you talked about, it, they're not taking this as a joke. There are people that are comfortable in that lifestyle, and I'm not demonizing it. It is what it is. I'll let the courts and the polices figure all that stuff out, but John is not that person from everything we've heard, and I wonder, seriously, as you know, for someone in, in Memphis area, what happens when you come across someone who is? What happens then?
2: Well said. Uh, We leave it there. More on that story as it develops. More on the debt ceiling battle. Thank yous to Lisa Desjardins. Like I mentioned, PBS NewsHour correspondent. Go check out all her work at PBS.org. Speaking of .com, .com, LeonMediaNetwork.com, YouTube.com. Type in Can We Please Talk podcast. Please subscribe to our show. Shout out to all the new followers and subscribers that have been tuning in, crossing over. They've seen me and Nick in a bunch of different places and they've been downloading it uh, the episodes on audio podcast platforms you know by now apple spotify google good pods we're everywhere shout out to Acast, our hosting platform we can't do it without them and truly we can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program you write in comments you email us the t- i'm telling you the tiktok comment section go follow us on tiktok it's wild and i can't thank you enough for tuning into this program and engaging with our content as always i'm mike leon
0: and i'm nick saveri
2: we'll see everybody next time